Welcome to Art Fictions, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. I'm today's host, Gillian Knipe, artist, creator, and producer of this podcast. Today's guest is artist mentor Kerry Hand. Now, normally after tidying up the recording to take out our many ums, ers, stutters and repeats, I try to mould a conversation that voices as much as possible in the shortest time, but not today. Buckle up for a long one because I think it's super important to hear Kerry's thinking in detail, not only because her positive outlook is catchy, which it is, but in this episode, she highlights the best parts of being a creative person in the art world through a book which spells out the worst of that same place. So whether you're an artist, gallerist, curator or writer, perhaps even an art mentor yourself, I'm convinced everyone listening today will find a little nugget that helps them in their creative journey. Speaking of being an artist, are you? I'd love to learn a little more about who's listening and I invite everyone to drop me a note introducing yourself. Just email artfictionspodcast at gmail.com and let me know what it is that you do along with a little detail on why you listen to this podcast. Now let's hear a few gems directly from Kerry Hand. Welcome to Art Fictions, Kerry Hand. Thanks so much, Gillian. I'm so happy to be with you. It's It's very nice to be with you, and especially because you're now in 3D, and a lot of people like me only know you with a a monitor screen around your face. You'd be amazed at how few people I've seen in 3D over the last couple of years. Wow. Uh, So for our discussion today, you've chosen The Blazing World, written by Siri Husfed, published by Hodder and Stoughton in 2014. Long listed for the Booker Prize and winner of the Los Angeles Times Book for Fiction, the story reveals the life of artist Harriet Burden, often referred to as Harry, uh, which is part of the story actually, so we'll get back into that, across snapshots of journal entries and testimonies by her family, friends and colleagues, which are compiled and edited by academic researcher I.V. Hess after Harriet's death. Furious with the cultural misogyny that's left her all but ignored by the New York art world, Harriet hides her identity behind three male fronts in a series of exhibitions. While their huge success goes to prove her point, when she finally unmasks herself, not everyone believes her. What a stunning read, uh, as is anything by Siri Husfed, of course. So Kerry, perhaps you could tell me why you chose this book. Well, I guess it comes down to my experience of the art world. And over 30 years, I've done pretty much most of the roles in the art world. (laughs) But I spend all my days talking to artists and helping them to demystify some of the kind of the smoke and mirrors of the art world. And I think not only do I really like Siri and her writing Mm. and the kind of the weaving and multi-layered textural kind of quality that's in her writing... But also I thought it would give us a great framework to actually discuss our experience of the art world. But also, as you know, I'm a huge optimist and those things that I find challenging in the art world, you know, I'm on a mission really to help people navigate their own journey through it. So some of the things that kind of leave like poisons or toxins that refer to it in the book, I experience that a lot with artists, you know, how some of those things that thwart us in the art world 
And I guess I really am hopeful that we can talk about some of those things, but also to offer some slightly different takes on how we might approach things so that we don't feel so overwhelmed, frustrated um, from the sexism, misogyny, all of the things that we experience in the world, but especially in the art world. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's in the world, you know, we talk about it within the framework of the art world, but there's not much, I think, that happens in the art world that doesn't happen in the rest of the world. It's just a microcosm. But I think in the art world, so many people like me are so vulnerable. It's it's doubly unfair or something or other. Yeah, I think there's something in the your superpower as an artist, yeah. you know, and the thing that helps you to show us things about the world that we can't possibly see or get to on our own, which is the beauty of what you do as an artist. That also is the thing. So you, you feel things deeply, you sense things deeply, but also some of the codes that there are in the world. Very often in our youth, we can see those codes don't make sense. And artists really continue throughout their lives to know and be able to call the bullshit in the world. But I think there's also that dichotomy of knowing things are a certain way and feeling disempowered by them mm. or feeling motivated and inspired to carve your own path Mm. and I guess I spend most of my time trying to encourage artists to create their own path be aware of the systems and the structures and the challenges but also to learn how to navigate it so that they don't get the knees by it yeah but then this book portrays all those systems and structures being quite impossible and Harriet speaking of the emotionally sensitive nature let's say of most artists there was an interesting review in The Guardian by Rachel Cusk actually to be honest it was quite difficult to find reviews that were by men and Siri Husford in an interview I watched with her was saying exactly that about readers of her books she said that when she goes to a book signing it's mostly women and the men that are there are saying that they've bought the book for their wife or girlfriend Mm -hmm. she says why is this so difficult to be a male and like a female writer Mm -hmm. so I found that quite interesting and she drew the analogy between that and the fact that it's not a strange thing for a daughter to say, when I grow up I want to be just like my dad, but it would be really strange or taken as particularly odd if a heterosexual male said, oh, when I grow up I want to be like my mum. Anyway, coming back to this uh, review, Rachel Cusk says, while Harriet's own diaries undoubtedly make the book more accessible, To an extent, they blunt the novel's edge by confusing a visual politics with a verbal one. The authority of woman in language, her ability to both articulate herself and to make herself intelligible, is worlds away from her dispossession in art. Therefore, that particular note of tragedy, though Husfeld tries to sound it, remains lost. And I've got a sense of that in the book. Mm -hmm. I've read Mysteries of the Rectangle and what I loved, and I find that when it comes to talking about dipping in and out of philosophy, psychoanalysis, biology, neuroscience all those sort of things that I find that when it comes to talking about art it doesn't have that emotionality Mm -hmm. it's the difference between knowing which is Husfeld's comfort zone in terms of writing and intellectualizing about art and knowing about and I think she's much more removed and descriptive when it comes to 
the heart of the artist. Yeah, I think, and that's certainly, it's divided lots of artist friends that I know. And one of the reasons that I thought it would be a great book to talk about is precisely because of that distance. And there's something that I'm always encouraging the creatives that I support and work with is that bringing yourself and all the kind of squidgy, messy, difficult stuff that goes along with all of the conceptual ideas and the kind of intellectual, philosophical, neuroscience, all the stuff that artists soak up, unless we get a sense of the feeling your way through stuff, where actually you take us beyond those ideas to that space in between, then actually it doesn't resonate in quite the same way. So I found it fascinating because actually Siri herself is mirroring what she's talking about with um, Harry in the book. And actually her approach to the book in this kind of forensic excavation of memory, false memory, imaginary spaces that people are trying to occupy. There's a kind of moving between. So it's kind of rich and textured and layered it's hard to feel empathy for the characters. In fact, actually, Bruno, who is her lover, who really loves Harry, actually, that's one moment where you get a sense of a kind of squishy 3D character who's desperately trying to love somebody, in a sense, I think. But I, yeah, I think she's a very good writer about relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's true. So there's that knowingness, I think, and then the slippages, that thing that you're looking for where you actually go beyond the kind of the craft of a novel. But I think there were so many multiple mirrors in it that I thought it was interesting in relationship to how I see artists grappling with what they know they want to articulate in their practice and then the structures and the frameworks that they're operating within Mm. and how often that structure and framework can drown out their own voice and I think in the book that's one of the things that we've constantly been brought back to is that Harry's trying to find her voice but she's ventriloquizing if you like through these characters that she's invented. That's quite interesting because part of that, and this is something that I am very guilty of, and I'm sure we've met lots of people that are also very guilty of this, is self-sabotage. So when you were just talking before, I was thinking about the notion of empathy that keeps coming up through. And I think that Siri is trying to convey an empathy with her characters. And it's it's a huge issue for Harriet herself. But there's also self-sabotage. And at one point, Harriet voices her ambition as I wanted to fly and to breathe fire, which is a fantastic and hugely problematic ambition because, of course, it's a reference to Icarus and flying too close to the mm-hmm. sun. And the story of Icarus is that he was, let's say, too ambitious and therefore the wax melted his wings. But I think that there was something about that story that gets a bit lost, which is the idea of Icarus being warned against complacency as well as hubris and and this idea of the need for victory as distinct from winning. And I think Mm. that's what happens with Harry to a degree because she, she engages these three different artists Anton Tish, Phineas Eldridge, and Rune. I loved Phineas, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was brilliant. And it all sort of backfires on her. So she has this revenge, this wild vengeance, which is a fantastic idea, but it doesn't quite turn out. 
she doesn't quite win in the end. No, she doesn't. And I think the three characters that she picks Mm. to collaborate with, but really they are giving voice to her artwork. So she sets them up in a way through they start a relationship and they create an artwork and it goes out into the world to great acclaim or greater or lesser acclaim. And nobody spots all the codes within the work. So there are lots of clues. She leaves traces, doesn't she, of like scratchings. There are even initials um, that she leaves in. So the clues are there all the way through for people to spot the fact that it is. There are characters like the, the critic who, even when he finds out that the male artist's work kind of doesn't believe, he still believes that the male artist has made certain elements of it. So there's there's something about that almost evidencing and proving what she already thought, hoping that it would be different, you know. And I thought there was something about Phineas. He thought that she didn't have any other choice because, you know, she was silenced and because she was the wife of an art dealer who was incredibly successful, therefore she was wealthy. She was the wealthy wife and mother of two. And so she was the host of all of her husband's dinner parties. But she was always silenced until she was tipped over the edge by an idiot buffoon at dinner. And she erupted. And uh, I loved the fact that she was livid and started speaking philosophically. And then nobody could understand her. Yeah. Because she was so clever. Yeah. (laughs) And that just made me laugh. But also the fact that Siri had made her kind of in our minds. But I I mean, I don't Mm. agree. Being a tall woman. She made her tall almost like Lenny from Of Mice and Men, I think is how she's referenced. So we get this sense that she's a powerhouse, an intellectual powerhouse as well as an artist. And all her life, she can't find anyone who understands her. So by finding these characters who she thinks people will love these people. So if my work is presented to the art world by these male artists, then there will be a sense that the work was good you know, in a sense that people will will validate it, but actually it will also prove my own point. So in a way, she's cutting her nose off despite her face. Yeah. And is utterly crushed, of course, when things don't go according to plan. It was just so awful that she wasn't believed. And in the book, it refers to one of the journalists saying, a 50-ish year old woman who's been hanging around the art world all her life can't really be called a prodigy, can she? Like so many inconvenient women before her, Burden is labelled a hysterical fantasist. I mean, even the fact that her name is Burden. (laughs) It's so unfortunate. And her husband is Felix Lord, you know, the Lord and the Burden. Of course, all of the names mean something. And she had a friend, Rachel Briefman, who says that she remembers her standing in front of the mirror with tears streaming down her face and talking about, I hate the way I look, which you do when you're 15 or 16. But it seemed to move into her adult life. And and at one point, there was this critic, Oswald Case, of course, a reference to Lee Harvey Oswald, (laughs) who shoots the president, who refers to her as, you know, she was barking at me and waving her meaty hands. And it was (laughs) such an awful visual idea. And uh, her friend then talks about the fact that Frankenstein was her favourite book. And Siri Husved, in a conversation when the book just came out, said something really, really interesting. I mean, aside from the fact that she talked about this huge repression, so when Frank, her husband, dies, she has these vomiting fits. So Mm. all this stuff she's held in, you know, Mm. starts coming out. 
But she says about her, I wanted her physically to represent a fear in the culture. Mm. And I just love that line. Uh, She had gigantic breasts. She's huge. She's got this wild hair. So she was my monster. She identifies very heavily with Frankenstein's monster. And I thought a lot about Milton's Satan all the time I was writing her, which is a reference to Milton's Paradise Lost. But anyway, the point is that there's this sense that if she'd been a son, and again, this is Siri Husfeld talking about her own writing, her father would have recognised her, seen her, encouraged her work. Yeah, there's lots of references to fathers and mothers all the yeah. way through. So all of the characters have got interesting or slippery relationships. There's intimations that maybe, certainly with Rune's family history, I don't know if you've got a sense that maybe he was at the, the heart of some of those people dying, but there's a longing, I guess, in those familial relationships. So every single character in the book is an outsider within their own family unit or within their chosen family. And in the end, she creates this kind of warehouse full of misfits. The barometer is one of my favourite characters, actually, until he goes nuts at the end. But the idea that there is somebody who saw his own mum struck by lightning. So there were moments all the way through where the extraordinary impact of the kind of ordinariness of family life if you like, and the the horrors and the beauty that we all go through. And certainly with all the father relationships, there is a there's a withholding. And I think Harry, when she was a kid, she wasn't wanted. But revenge is written out in other ways. So when she's discovered at night stabbing some of her own artwork, heart-wrenching, yeah. but also the fact that she's alone at night in the heart of night and mm. the guttural cries that mm. kind of are coming out through the warehouse. So you get a sense of how many are wounded in the novel and where their creativity comes from, but also how those woundings play out throughout. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. There is this sense of wrongness. Phineas talks about being gay and that being wrong, being black and that being wrong in a white society. She feels that she's been born into the wrong gender and there's a lot about gender and gender fluidity Mm. and of course her friend saying that the fact that her father referred to her as Harry and her friend was a psychoanalyst was quite Mm. telling. Towards the end which is very sad I know to fast forward but she's not very well and all her hair is cut short and uh, again that kind of the whole Samson and Delilah and the power that she has somehow is kind of deflated but still those that love her and attend to her embrace those idiosyncrasies and there was something about memory that you were interested in through the book do you want to tell me a bit about that yeah i think several things there's one in terms of the way that everybody is recollecting and we know that actually so many cultural things affect our memory but also Mm. our emotions So we know that all of the memories that are being retold to us are spurious Mm. and the fact that it's a fiction in the first place. But having those multiple perspectives to trying to get to the nub of the truth, which we kind of know is impossible. And yet we're kind of gripped trying to excavate some sense of what was the reality of it and how important the deception or the lies are. So that's one aspect in terms of those interpersonal relationships and Mm. how people relate to each other. The other is in terms of how artists construct 
their work. And I was thinking in particular in relationship to your paintings, Mm -hmm. you know, and just how layered and textured they are, you know, where the paintings that I'm aware of and obviously your history and coming from another country and how often the light and the land has infused the kind of the recollection that comes through in your work and how that's fused now with you being rooted here. So very often when we look at your work, there's a kind of sense of zooming out and looking over above it and being able to get a sense of how that past, present and future is layered together to make one whole. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. But that's the part of the work that if it made total sense to me, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so this is another thing that Siri was talking about. So she refers to it as unconscious perceptual inference. And she refers to Margaret Lucas Cavendish, who was an English philosopher, poet, science fiction writer and playwright. And she was resurrected by feminist scholars because she anticipates these contemporary ideas of perceiving the world through our past perceptions of it. Siri Mays made the point of considering this in the context of supposedly enlightened, democratic voting, liberal West. This bias is how we've learned to see works of art. And there are lots of studies that if you attach a woman's name to a piece of art, then that work is instantly denigrated and devalued. And it's not just men doing this, it's also women too, because so many women in New York own artwork. And threaded throughout her conversations in her interviews is she refers to the Mm. art market as opposed to the art world. And I find that a distinct difference in New York talk versus London talk. I I don't know about you, but I think that grounded sense of where's the money going Mm. who's collecting what what are the museums buying what are they not buying that sort of hard edge reality of the end point let's say of Mm. where the work ends up well i think there's several threads that interesting to me that you said one in terms of perception and i think that's one of the reasons that i'm so obsessed about sort of demystifying these different art worlds if you like the art market and the art world is because of the things that we don't know, as all humans, Mm. you know, terrify Mm. us or fill us with fear, but also, in a way, that idea that suddenly, I don't know, it's a bit like the capitalist dream, I suppose, the idea that suddenly your work would become much more meaningful if it was collected by a certain person or Mm. if it entered such and things, you know, it's one thing. But also the perception of, in the book, They make a great point, I think, about the difference between wealth and value. Mm. And I think there's something about us adding value through our creativity and people allocating value or assigning value to us through all of these other perceived value. And so the art world is based on perceived value. Mm. It's how we create value is through a social structure. So a certain number of people, whether it's a collector, a curator, a writer, a press person, that they combine together to discuss certain things about the artist and the artwork. Mm. And those things combined create value and social value. 
So when something has social value and it's deemed to be connecting to the zeitgeist or speaking about the issues of our time or saying something very particular, but there are certain people who mostly have the wealth and ability to elevate those artworks is very different from whether the work itself has intrinsic value. Mm, mm. And so very often in the sort of the idea of us perceiving, you know, what's happening in the marketplace as to what's actually happening. So talking to artists about other artists is so important Mm. because artists really understand when somebody's doing something amazing and interesting in their field. Curators and collectors listen Mm. first and foremost to artists because you are obsessive about ideas. And so who is really testing or pushing the boundaries of the ideas of our time becomes really exciting for people. They want to be connected to artists. And yet so often artists feel that they don't have value or they aren't valued Mm. in a way. And yet in the heart of the art market or the art world, they have ultimate value so that tension I think is referred to in the book and Mm. I think that sort of idea that here Harry is living with Felix who is the tastemaker in a particular time and if he wasn't married to her she might be one of three women that he represented in his stable of artists and yet he didn't help her quite the contrary actually and so the idea that we have to wait for permission or we have to wait for people to give us a voice or to give us value is something that I'm quite keen to dismantle well you could probably very much identify then with the academic who is well the supposed academic who's writing the book so interestingly her name is I.V. Hess which is probably some sort of reference to Eva Hesse, whose work acknowledged an inside and an outside life. And she felt, of course, very much during her lifetime, and her lifetime was obviously cut short so tragically, but she was not taken as seriously as the men who were in her circle. And I'm not going to list who they are because they're all They don't need any marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Her husband's forgotten, but she's risen to the top of the pile. Uh, But it's also, interestingly, because it's specifically I.V. some sort of idea of intravenous therapy, so life-saving blood, you know, medicine, nutrition that goes directly into the vein, and probably ivy, which is a symbol of everlasting life or devotion, closely associated with Dionysus, who is, amongst other celebratory things, the god of fertility and theatre. And so I think all of this is about resurrection, is about breathing new life into, is about the sort of rebirth, which you, Kerry, have (laughs) facilitated quite beautifully. But there's also this sense in the book of not going back and the fear of going forward. So there's a fantastic quote that meant a lot to me, which was this, which I think is the nub of so many reasons why I came to you in the first place, (laughs) which is the mind has its own place and it bears us backward and forward. It has its own architecture of the past that comes from real rooms and real streets, but they are made over and over again in time and now reside within, not without. Once those places were filled with the noise of garbage trucks and sirens and the sentence fragments of chattering pedestrians and the odours of moving seasons. But the dense visions and clamour and smells that have been simplified into interior mental codes, and I'm just going to say beware, 
grows stiff with words. The future is made of that same stuff, elemental spaces we inhabit with wishes or fears. Why so many fears? Mm, <laughs> love that. Beautifully read. I mean, so many people must be like that when they come so to So many fears. I mean, fears of our own minds, for sure, and what's held within. And I guess after 30 years of being in the art world, one of the reasons I went to train as a coach was because I had been mentoring. But I realised that the beautiful brains that we have as creatives, you know, we manifest such incredible things from our minds. And artists know exactly that their thoughts create this incredible stuff, but also they can conjure all kinds of phantoms and ghouls and spectres that haunt us. And so learning how to manage our minds, I think, was one of the things actually, you know, it's something I've always been fascinated in. So that was really the purpose of going back to train as a coach. And so that emotional roller coaster of navigating our internal lives and then in relation to the context that we find ourselves you know which is ever moving so that idea of the I in the book which is a fluid ever-changing thing Mm. the thing that I, I want to support artists and creators with is letting go of that external validation being the dominant force so that actually it's important to have a community and an audience and I really love the fact that you are doing such incredible work here and in your own work and sharing that and curating and supporting so many other creatives. Because I honestly believe that's the key to unlocking the kind of the grip, the jewels of that external validation fear that comes. Mm. Firstly, from putting yourself out into the world, you know, and revealing oneself through one's work where, you know, there's a lot of work through coaching that I Um, support creatives to do which is to be more compassionate to the work itself once it's produced from you and goes into the world and to enable it as if you were looking after a, a friend as you would so that you really become the best custodian of your own work but also to to champion what you've created because it's amazing that you can produce. I mean, your paintings are phenomenal. And the fact that you can produce such incredible work from your brain is amazing. And all of the things that went into making you, you, make the DNA and the thumbprint in those paintings uniquely yours. So that's really something to be celebrated. And so that fear that might stop you, that's the thing that I like trying to help artists with is really it's like actually come on you know it's amazing this stuff you've produced is phenomenal let's get it in somewhere and just see how it makes people feel yeah I mean I love that the two main things that I'm reminded again and again whenever I speak to you or or watch one of your presentations is this idea of having to shove aside the external validation and uh, some of that is real Mm. but so much of that is what we just manifested in our heads, which which Harriet does, obviously, in the book. And the other thing is having compassion for the work mm. uh, and for the practice. I recently had a few people, you know, a very small number of people come into my studio by invitation. I, I wanted to talk to them about specific things and just the sort of rejuvenation of the enthusiasm by just being able to have conversations with people and just loosen up a bit and then you sort of feel refreshed and can't wait to go back into the studio then. I know, there is that, there's something on the other side of fear. Mm. I think that's the thing is that as creatives, we're very often creative introverts. 
And actually the thought of revealing ourselves or putting ourselves out into the world feels terrifying. We'd much rather somebody just saw the work and we're like, see ya, I'm off, (laughs) you know, which I totally get. But, you know, the fact that you might have to accompany the work Mm. because people find it very hard to separate the work. They're Mm. curious, just like with the book, you know, you found out more about what Siri herself had said because you kind of want to know what were those references? What were they thinking? The same as with artwork. And I think in the art world, we're not as generous, actually, as dancers or writers or musicians. They have to lug their work around for years, playing the same bloody song over and over again or, you know, talking about why they wrote the book and whereas they could say, it's all in the book. (laughs) Just read the book, (laughs) which is what artists want to do. But I think once you get used to the fact that you're putting yourself into the world and actually people are excited They want to know what's behind the curtain. They want to understand because they want to see themselves in what you've made. They want to understand, like, you were frightened, but you did it anyway. Mm. You were scared, but you did it anyway. Maybe I could be that brave. Maybe I could do something creative. So I think it's fantastic that you put yourself in that studio and open yourself, allowed yourself to be vulnerable Mm. and reveal and say, hey, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, because of course preceding that I was convinced nobody will ever come. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, As we all do. But um, coming back to the different roles that you've had, Kerry, I first knew your work as Kerry Hand, the gallerist, Mm -hmm. and... The next thing that I knew that you'd done was your involvement in the brilliant Somerset House exhibition, Get Up, Stand Up Now, in 2019. And so the poet, author, art critic, and soon to be another guest host on Art Fictions, Cherry Smith and I spent at least two hours in that Mm -hmm. exhibition. It was completely brilliant with the celebratory photographs of Horace Obey and going back through his son, Zach's, compilation of works by black British artists focusing on those of the 50s and 60s who challenged what it meant to be British and part of a multicultural society. And then in 2020, we met personally with me as a client of your mentoring program. And I think in that sense, we're going to go a little off piece with this podcast today because we're going to talk a bit about my practice, (laughs) which is really strange. That you're the guest and uh, it'll be talking about me, me, all about me. But it will be talking about you and your process as well. Yes. So I was previously an art director in the commercial sphere. So doing a lot of PR and experiential Mm. pop-up events and all that sort of stuff. So a lot of design Mm. of spaces, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really interested in that because you, in a way, that storytelling was really natural to you and the way that you were thinking about the podcast was fascinating to me because obviously moving to this country and thinking about networks and I was really interested in your take on the class system oh my gosh (laughs) just how utterly baffling that must have been Well, it still is. And in fact, my kids are currently in Australia and Australia has all sorts of other biases. So, but it doesn't have the class system like Mm. you do here. And they said to go and experience that in real life is so much different than being told about it 
and you do see the sort of strangeness of the construct that mm. exists here that is a genuine barrier to so many people in so many fields. It's just excruciating. Yeah, I really connected that when I first met you. Years ago, um, I used to be director of the Women's Art Library and Make magazine. And um, before that, I worked with Heidi Reitmeyer, who mm. was a, a big influence on me because she was Canadian and she just, she did not give a shit. She had no sense of the class system. She would like ring anybody up to get an interview for the magazine, <laughs> whether it was uh, Yayo Kasama well, or you know yeah. whoever. She'd be like, yep, yeah, let's do it. Mm. She was just on the phone. Yeah. And I went to work with her at the ICA briefly. And again, you know, whether it was writers or even Christo, she would just move fluidly because she didn't understand it. And therefore mm. she wasn't at all nervous of it, which I thought was great. But I was curious. So you started the podcast just around the time that we sort of uh, first met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tried it out as a sort of concept in writing mm. as a result of going to an artist's studio and talking about books and talking about her painting and sort of interweaving between the two and finding it much easier to talk about her painting when mm. we were talking about the book, just picking up on the ideas that were in that and shifting into her painting. So I tried it out for about a year beforehand, interviewing mm. artists in the same vein and it was always going to be a podcast <laughs> and then like so many people when lockdown hit I thought well if I'm ever going to do it it's going to be now mm. um, but it was much easier to turn around one a week then because there was nothing else going on <laughs> yeah it's such a lot it's a life's work that yeah, you've committed yeah, yeah. to yeah. so as a sort of practitioner and obviously the work that you do with the podcast how has that influenced your painting practice well I'm almost embarrassed to say I've learned so much from other people mm. so just the way people think and the, you had mentioned compassion before the different ways that people treat their art practice and respect their art practice I found that really really helpful so for instance I've got to be in the studio every 10 minutes and I can't be and I'm never going to be able to do what I want to do because I can't get into the studio all the time I mean when I finished my master's for instance I went back and worked for another five years you know I just couldn't afford to if you like be an artist which is how I came about writing because I didn't really have much capacity to participate as an artist. The writing informed the podcast? So the writing it was a way to still participate in the art world and because I was doing this other creative endeavour in my you know paid work I found that I didn't have a lot of capacity to function as an artist because it's a very different way working with a client brief. Mm. And as an artist, you're almost working the other way around. So I found it mentally difficult to flip between the two. And I also had young children as well. So <laughs> there's only so much headspace. And so the writing came about quite naturally, but also... You know, I'm a fairly decent writer, so it was more of a, I guess, a comfort zone, something I mm. could do. I wrote for about two years without being paid or anything because I didn't have to worry about that at the time because I was working. But there was something unsatisfactory about that because it was still not helping me meet people. Mm. And so I began interviewing a bit more and then that slightly improved things, but it still wasn't around discussions until the podcast idea. Can you remember what it was that led you to, to contact me? So I had continued the writing because I needed the money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not that writing pays much. And 
I was trying to run a studio practice and I was trying to do the podcast and I was so stretched. I Mm. just felt like I was running, running, running all the time and I was not doing anything properly. I had my hand in too many pies and so I came to you and said, I always am going to need a studio practice because Mm. otherwise I don't think my husband will allow me to (laughs) continue living at home. (laughs) But you know, I, I just don't have the capacity to push it in all mm-hmm. the ways that I know I have to push it. You know, I come from that sort of marketing PR world and I knew I needed to support the practice outside of the studio, but without the capacity, you know, what on earth was I going to do? So I guess one of the primary things was to say, do I have a worthwhile art practice to begin with mm. to continue? And you overwhelmingly said yes and (laughs) convinced me to keep going and so I've largely dropped the writing as Mm. a result because I couldn't keep that going although people who've been on my podcast I follow pretty much everything that they're doing I try and go to the shows that they do and coming up Jane Hayes Greenwood has an exhibition at Caster Gallery so I will be reviewing that so Mm. I try and watch what people are doing yeah lovely uh, and try and write about it if I can yeah And in that process of our meetings, what Mm -hmm. would you say the takeaways that have stayed with you have been? You know, I don't want to be repetitive, but it is that compassion. I've learned to, okay, I'm not very consistent, Kerry, (laughs) (laughs) but rather than try and be in the studio every 10 minutes and feel terrible if I'm not continually in the studio, It's to be in the studio, but not necessarily to be doing painting work in the studio Mm. all the time. Mm. So I'm working on less paintings at a time Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to pay them more intense attention by sort of leaving them aside more Mm -hmm. and just pacing the studio practice a lot more. But one of the big breakthroughs, I think, was that, you know, almost in my first meeting with you, I was talking to you about Catherine of Aragon and the lineage of, of all Mm -hmm. things, Black Stitch, and that probably coming from the Moors and then going to Spain and then coming to England and being turned into this thing called Holbein Stitch, which is Black Stitch is another word for it, or Black Work, which has then become a title for tattooing. And when we had that discussion and I was talking to you about that, you were saying, oh, your body language, when you're talking about this sort of lineage and this history and Catherine of Aragon coming from a dry red climate to a wet green one and coming across the seas, you're really animated. And I've never forgotten that. And I've used that with other people. Mm. Uh, So I've stolen from (laughs) you. So I will give you credit, anybody that I do that with. You know, you can be as logic as you like in writing, Mm. but actually when your body comes into... Mm play it is very much part of what you as a Mm. practitioner have to listen to right yeah I think when you're in a sort of coaching or mentoring relationship deep listening obviously is the fundamental tool but you're observing as you say the body language but also what's not being said so yes there's something that happens in that space between us which is a, an intimacy and a vulnerability from two people coming together to see what's possible yeah. and I think yeah. when somebody gives me their trust as you did there's a definite decision to allow radical candor with each other and I think in earning that trust is how you can support somebody to dig deep 
and start really pushing the work that has their own particular idiosyncratic stamp, if you like. And Mm. I think we did some interesting exercises where we were looking at the paintings that we liked the most. And we always agreed on the ones that sung Mm. the most. Mm. And I think there's something in that edit when we started looking at the edit of the work where suddenly you became really visible. And it's so heartwarming when you can see that move. Like you can see somebody sit differently when they realize actually Mm. I've got a good thing going on (laughs) I've got a good thing going on the work is better than I thought but also that actually it does say what I wanted it to say and you have somebody now as a coach or a mentor you don't help anybody if you blow smoke up their ass for no Mm. reason so by having that radical candor and somebody saying you, you seem a bit uptight in this work or it's not quite giving me the same energy or the same vibe that is your consistent thing and I think when somebody knows and can see where you're hiding and when you're really taking risks there's something about having somebody with you to enable you to take risks I mean it's brilliant what you've achieved since we've been talking you know is just phenomenal the bravery but also the decision to go on and support other people to be brave as well it's just I love it oh wonderful (laughs) see you are an IB In fact, that reminded me of one of the other things about you. You were talking about the assessment of painting and working together on that. And one of the things that was really critical or made a huge shift for me, and I still use this, is the good girl paintings Mm -hmm. (laughs) versus the weird stuff. So you, you picked apart these paintings because you're brutally honest, which I loved that because, mm. you know, I'm Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that explains inherently that I only understand straightforward talking. <laughs> and you're really, really good at being able to say, well, you know, these paintings are very lovely. They tick boxes. You know, they'd be nice on my wall, etc. But they're a bit like everything else going on in London mm. or, or the UK or whatever. Whereas these other paintings, and some of which admittedly I'd overpainted by this point, they're odd, I'm not quite sure where things are placed on the canvas, etc. And, you know, we went into quite a detailed analysis of those. But these were things that I thought I was doing almost on the side. Like, okay, this is what I really want to paint, but it's too obscure or weird. And who cares about a lot of the work will be sometimes trying to highlight the detail of something at a microscopic level Mm. and trying to explore that that's not a blown-up version of of what we see, but it's something else altogether. Mm. And those sort of things about sort of where physics or biology meets philosophy, phenomenology, I mean, they sound like really big academic fields to describe, but I'm jumping in and out of those all, all the time. But to find that that might be interesting to somebody else was... You know, blew my mind, to be honest. I think, you know, it's something that anybody who knows or has worked with me, I'm always encouraging the sort of the weirdness and uh, (laughs) the wonk in people because I think that's where it's at. At the end of the day, it's the grit in the oyster. We talked before about sort of being more punk than hippie and there's a frisson. When your work is on point for me, which I absolutely love, there's a kind of vibration in it and it's that vibration that is bringing in the repercussions of memory and perception and the kind of the after image 
that you are living with and embodying with a kind of a forward projection. So the multiple viewpoints that you have in your work and the kind of the way you make things simply complex, I really love. You know, it's not easy to work with abstraction that way. And I think also your colour, you know, I like the things that are incongruous. Yeah. That's when I think that you're really on fire. So the work that we know would be easy for people to consume and I think I like the fact that you might make it a bit hard for people I love that about your work and obviously that makes it very desirable as well because you can see when somebody's on top of their game and their craft because it feels like you need to go back and have another look it's just not a passive consumption it's something that's like burning on your retina you get pulled back to that frequency because you want to kind of it's not quite like anything I've seen before there's a familiarity somehow but I can't quite place it I think that's what you do really well. Thank you very much. I mean, you're sort of trying to find the familiarity in a way in yourself. But when you were talking, it did remind me of, and I suppose it's it's really obvious now, but that shift for me from trying to look at the work from the perspective of a potential viewer, which is what I used to do in communications. You're mm. always looking at how you might design, say, an experiential pop-up at a festival for a client. You're looking at it from the visitor's perspective. So you're always trying to look at everything, in that case, design-wise, from somebody else's perspective and that slow transition I've had to make to be looking at work from my perspective Mm. and not be thinking about the viewer at the point of making it it's just you know futile Mm. I think that's something that happens with all my clients there's a moment where we sort of suddenly realize there's a becoming and and a confidence that actually your viewpoint is okay Mm. And actually your viewpoint is the only viewpoint that matters to make great work. Mm. Like ultimately you can soak up the world, you can kind of bring your past, present, future with you, but it's your lens that we're interested in. And actually if we see you obfuscating or ventriloquizing or using somebody else's yeah, voice, yeah, yeah. or uh, we can smell it. Everyone yeah. can smell it. So we know when we see a great work that is uniquely yours. And I think that's the point that we're always trying to get to. Mm. I want to move on now to something very awkward, I find. But coming back to the book and the reality of, well, Harriet's reality of the misogynist world that she's trying to find a voice in. And also thinking about Siri Husfeld and the work that she's done and the push for more women in art, more women of colour in art being seen and being heard. How do you help people manage the unavoidable and unfair bias that really does exist in the art world because it really does exist in the world it really does and it's something that I've grown up with and I was lucky to be raised by a a feminist and uh, (laughs) people who campaigned for for fair rights but also have a family who are Jamaican and Nigerian so I have experienced and I know that I'm privileged in comparison but I think there's something about the deconstruction that the art world used and partly academic and partly in my experience of running women-only organisations too. I'm really aware of the strategies that are necessary and that I have been part of but something in my older years that I've realised has served me better is a knowledge and a tooling up but then a 
desire to find the right path for the individual that I'm working with. So I think one of the things that we suffer from a lot in the art world is always putting ourselves in relation to. Yes. In a way, that's, that's the thing that I, I want to shake up yeah. a bit. Because yeah. actually, when we look at an individual's core values and their inner purpose and their vision and their mission, it takes some chipping away, actually, for it not to be influenced by their partner, their husband, their wife, their kids, their mm. parents, their whatever. Everyone's voice is in the room. So we have our inner cast of characters. We have our peers. We yeah. have society as a whole. But somewhere in us, there is, and I know I sound like I'm going all the way to the woo, but there is a deep knowing. Everybody has it of what's right for them. And so when we get to the bottom of what do you care about? What do you give a shit about? How would you like to walk this creative path? Then actually other things start revealing themselves. Mm. For example, what kind of places you would like to show your work in? If it's not Hauser and Worth, doesn't mean that there are no choices and actually I think very often in our creative world it's amazing given our imaginations we get into a binary way of thinking which is really like if it's not this then it's shit Mm. if it's not the best then it's shit and it is that meritocracy I think has filtered in to us where that kind of wild and unbridled creativity that really is what fuels us is not as conformist you know, actually, it's not its not really a straight path or a, a hierarchy, as people see it. So there are lots of other ways of coming at it. So I have experienced misogyny, sexism, all the way through my career. And yet, yeah, here I am doing exactly what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my encouragement really yeah. is you have to find your allies. Yeah. And you have to you have to find your own North Star and you have to find people who are doing things that are more difficult than you, who are facing the fear and doing it anyway. And don't stay only in the deconstruction. And I like to help people take action and have agency in their own lives. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, that's fantastic. In fact, it reminded me of something somebody said to me recently, which I thought was so wonderful. And I love it that things can come from people of any age, because here's here's me having gone and done fine art school as a mature age student, and there's Harriet in her 50s, who's the new prodigy, really. And this was a very young person who said this to me. She said, you know, I feel that I'm always on the lookout for the yellow boxes, you know, the warnings, the Mm. warning signs. And I'm so preoccupied with finding those yellow boxes everywhere that I don't notice the green boxes. Mm. And the green boxes, let's say, are are the go, the go-to's, the things that are much more enabling. And I thought... I'm going to remember that forever because, mm. because it's it's got colours. <laughs> so it's pretty basic. I can remember that. But I love the way that I can envisage walking into a room and seeing lots of yellow boxes and being so alarmed by them that I do mm. miss the green boxes. Yeah. And you know those yellow boxes are going to be there all That's the time. That's right. And yeah. all you have to help somebody shine a torch on those green yeah. boxes. Yes, absolutely. So, Kerry, you've introduced me to a fantastic book, and I'm really grateful for that. And uh, I did make a slight mistake because I did listen to it on Audible, and it's not... Sorry, Audible. (laughs) (laughs) I listen to lots of other Audible podcasts and books, but this is not a book for Audible. I kept going, oh, who's this person? And then I would have to rewind, Mm. rewind, rewind. So I do recommend if anybody is going to read The Blazing World, it is brilliant. 
it is full of so many fantastic little insights and stories but perhaps get the paperback what else is on your bookshelf at the moment i'm reading a book called 10x is easier than 2x which is written by dan sullivan and dr benjamin hardy and i'm part of a entrepreneurial coaching course which is really working with people who work in different industries so since i have been voraciously connecting with people outside of the art world to Mm. think about how I want to set up my company and it Mm -hmm. is a limited company it's not funded by anybody other than myself and um and how I enable creative people to earn money doing what they love and so it's taken learning lots of new things and being in rooms with people who do extraordinary things like build hospitals in Nigeria Mm. and just amazing, mind-blowing things. So being vulnerable and put myself in the room with those people and do masterminds. And so this book is written by them. And the thing that has helped me, I think, in training as an artist and hanging out with artists every single day is that I... It's no joke the amount of amazing stuff that we manifest from our minds. And so actually learning how to control that better and put it to better focused use Mm. to enable and empower people feels exciting so yeah that's what I'm reading next to my bed at the moment wow I think it might be interesting now to just spend a moment if you had a studio practice I would be saying you know how can we see your work coming up Mm. but I thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about your organization which is named after you Kerry Hand and uh, how people can find you online and maybe just talk a little bit about what it is that you do I mean one of the things I'm particularly interested in is understanding the difference between coaching and mentoring so maybe you could do a bit of an introduction to yeah you. I've changed the name from artist mentor but the website is still up and there's lots of resources on there if anyone wants to check it out like how to write a certificate of authenticity for example so that's on artistmentor.co.uk But we've now changed the name to Kerry Hands, and that's partly because I wanted to align myself with artists, like walk the talk, reveal myself, but also my surname, Hand. My parents are no longer with us, so it's a kind of an ode to them. But also, obviously, creativity is all in the hand, and it's about connection and community. And so I still coach, and I work with mid-career and established artists, but also curators, museum directors, creative professionals. But I now work with a bunch of associate coaches and mentors. Mm -hmm. So I prefer to coach, but I do sometimes blend in mentoring. And there is a distinct difference. I would say a, a creative mentor is somebody who uses their own personal experience, their own journey to offer advice, insights and a kind of roadmap Mm -hmm. to somebody to help them get to where they want to get to a little quicker. So it's much more advice focused. Coaching is really enabling someone to make, I think, 
more lasting change, actually, because it gives somebody the tools. So it's instead of just giving them the, the keys to the car, they actually get under the bonnet and they retune the engine so that the car can go on for like ever, but also that they teach somebody how to fix their own engine. So it's really about supporting somebody to see the limitations and the possibilities mm. of their own thinking and how their thinking could enable them to behave differently, to put some new habits in. It really is about neuroplasticity, really. It's about mm. actually learning some new tools that actually are going to enable you to create a bigger impact. So the range of associate coaches and mentors that we are just launching are amazing. And actually, I'm very excited. Last night, I met one of our new associates who's going to work with millennials for us, who it's just the most which un- ones are they oh, <laughs> between 20 and 30 I mean I work with any age group but I think yeah. actually I'm on a mission to help 100,000 creatives by the end of 2025 Ooh. so we've got a posse of 10 at the moment that's growing Brilliant. so if anybody's interested in being yeah. uh, an associate coach or mentor they can get in touch yeah. hello I, at kerryhand.com yes i do find that interesting though that you were talking about you working with mid-career artists because there's something that i have had conversations with a lot of people where i've come out of art school and then deciding pretty much to give up my full-time work i've come out of that going okay well what network <laughs> what's this network business mm. and I've had to build everything from scratch and uh, but what I found is that so many people of my age all those buoyant activities going on from when you first leave art school that's all sort of dissipated you know? yeah and I think there's all kinds of things that feed into that I mean I'm, I have a passion for working with mid-career and established women in particular mm-hmm. and I think every coach and every mentor will have their USP if you yeah. like and yeah. we all have our different tools that we use I would say it's where you do your best work that makes the difference because that's how you guarantee your clients results so I'm an expansive thinker I like helping people celebrate their weirdness and wonk so as you know but that mid-career thing is a real thing and um, whether it's you know losing confidence after being out of work for a while or maybe wanting to make a transition whether it's family suddenly we have caring duties you know there are things that impact on the work and I think we can easily lose sight of our own power I suppose Mm. in terms of what we've got to contribute so I developed the two courses that we have online at the moment for different ways that people can work with me but also with a range of arts professionals so one is the course how to price and sell your art five steps to successful sales And that is because of my experience in the public and private sector that I really do want to help artists earn more money from their work. But it's not just about who can I sell it to. All of the work that we don't get taught at art school, you know, in terms of how value is created, how perceived value is built, those hidden networks, and also the way that we can actually build value for ourselves. So it's everything from how we articulate our practice, how we communicate and connect with people through to how we have studio visits, how we prepare ourselves to make sales, and actually a whole load of work around money, because Mm. loads of artists have got challenges let's say when it comes to even 
the shame around either wanting it, yeah. needing it, whether they deserve it. And uh, so I've spent three years studying ways to help artists earn more money on the back of everything else I've learned in my career. Mm-hmm. So that's all in that course. And that's a self-study, but I coach inside. We have a, an online hub so people can download 100 videos, 35 worksheets, and then they get monthly coaching support from me. And then the other one, which we've just launched this week, is Mastering Mentoring. And that's because... Okay. I have so many programs and people who actually yeah. want to learn how to be a better mentor. And again, we don't get taught at college or art school, really, that sort of bit about deep listening, but also attuning to an artist's practice mm. is a, a deep skill so that you can support them better. So that's just a, a small course. But there's also free downloads. People go to the website, kerryhand.com. That's Kerry with a C-E-R-I. They can get a free PDF on how to have a sustainable creative career and every month we do free workshops so we just had one with a creative legacy advisor called Evelyn Laurent who was amazing talking about how to prepare your estate she did have lots of advice for people who are still alive she did (laughs) she was very good she was very good so yeah for three years I've been hosting monthly sessions for free so hopefully there's lots of ways we can support people you're doing quite a lot but also you're learning along the way as well you know, uh, yeah. I mean, you're continually coaching yourself a hundred percent I've invested a lot of time and money over the last few yeah. years in learning and stretching myself so that I can support those people yeah. but also actually really I guess putting my money where my mouth is and uh, knowing what it's like to be a student and to also be mm. vulnerable and mm. be in that learning position but also mm. seeing what I'm capable of you know and pushing the edges of what I thought I was capable of so as I've got older it's important to me that I learn. And that's why I've done so many different jobs in my life, because yeah. I like learning difficult things and uh, finding out it's not as difficult, it's just different than I thought. Yeah, I agree. I like to be slightly out of my depth all of the time. <laughs> yeah. Kerry Hand, artist mentor, you've really made a huge impact on my life, which is now shaped around so many things that I've learned from you. Ah, uh, well, likewise. I learn from you and your work all the time, but also I'm just so happy that you'll keep putting your brilliant work out into the world. The world's a better place for it. <laughs> thank you very much. And at this point, I want to say, Kerry Hand, thank you very much for being on Art Fictions. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest, Kerry Hand. Art Fictions was recorded by Andy Amirshah, and the unabridged film can be viewed on YouTube at Cubit Community Radio. For this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing, and making. Till next time. And how about some rethinking? to bat away those nasties and put yourself in the critical centre of your own art practice.